Welcome to Alec Across the States. I'm Dan Reynolds, your host. Today on the premier policy-focused and state-solution-oriented podcast, we have Adam Hauser joining us. Great to be here, Dan. Thanks so much for having me. And we also have Grant Kidwell as well. Glad to be here. So, Adam Hauser, you work for the Committee for a Constructive Tomorrow, and you serve as the director for the college programs and also write frequently on energy and environment topics. And Grant is our task force director for the energy, uh, environment, and agricultural uh, task force here at ALEC. And uh, I think this is going to be a great conversation. Uh, just to start us off, Adam, why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit about what you do? Absolutely. So I've been with CFACT for four years. CFACT is the acronym for the Committee for a Constructive Tomorrow. A little bit easier to say, rolls off the tongue a little bit better. <laughs> um, but so prior to that, you know, I'm a Jersey boy. I was from New Jersey originally. And so um, many people from New Jersey. Uh, we're DC. all over the place. Yeah. You know, the most densely populated state in the nation. So we got to go That's somewhere. That's a good fact. You know? Yeah. So worked in the state legislature there, did speech writing and, and legislation there, uh, came down to the DC area to work for CFAC. Um, like you said, I do direct our collegians program, but when you think about energy and environmental issues on college campuses, you know you probably think of a you know tree hugging situation. You think of a you know a deinvest completely from you know natural gas or fossil fuels or anything like that. CFACT uh, pursues these issues from a free market perspective, so, uh, property rights perspective, trying to talk about how liberty, um, free markets, property rights. Those are all good things and actually help the environment. And believe it or not, there are college students out there who agree with that uh, and that we help mobilize. So um, we're more of a, a do tank than a think tank. We talk, do a lot of activism. Uh, we do a lot of, of outreach. And, you know, we have those research papers and things like that as well. But we really try to take it to the common man out there. Yeah, I think I think that's uh, that's awesome, and it's really great to see engagement from college students on a topic you might not find them to be, you know, very interested in. Uh, yeah. thinking about free markets and property rights towards environments, uh, but just I mean, that's a great way to start, a great uh, spot to start. Really, how do property rights benefit uh, environments? Because the you know the common argument from people you might hear on college campuses is that you need to have uh, the public sphere protecting the environment. You need to have government protecting the environment. So, what is your argument? Sure. So, when it comes to property rights and the environment, um, I believe in limited government and liberty and property rights, not because it can help the environment, because but because it is the best possible solution to helping the environment. So you have a lot of people out there saying, well, I'm a conservative, well, I'm a libertarian, well, I'm this, but you know, we don't hate the environment. That's you know, a completely wrong way of thinking about this. We agree with those issues because it has the best solutions. I'll use an example. In the 1800s, uh, overhunting had really decimated the bison population. And you have a lot of those on the left say, see, that's an example of, of hunting, of you know, business just destroying the environment. But it wasn't until... Um, they, these ranches were allowed to privately own the bison through property rights that created a natural incentive to keep them alive. If you own something, you've got an incentive to keep that capital going. And so in the 18, late 1800s, the bison population was down to 300. Now, after decades, hundreds of years of private ranchers being able to own them, the populations are up closer to 200 to 300,000 in private herds. So that's a direct example of private property rights saving a species from extinction. And so we talk about these things not because, you know, they're good and 
they don't hurt the environment because it's the best possible solution. And I think we've seen that across species too. This is uh, Grant just jumping in here. And Adam, I'd love to hear more examples as well. But I know uh, internationally there's the uh, campfire program in Zimbabwe working with elephants that did a lot for property rights with elephants. Uh, And I think we've also seen that with um, other species too. You know, you bring up Texas. There's a lot of uh, private um, game reserves there. And so it is still hunting, but it's uh, having an approach that allows humans to be part of the environment, not just part of the solution. You know, there's, I think, a, an alternative approach often from uh, more environmental groups on the left that tries to say humans are the problem, remove uh, humans from the environment. But I think uh, both for Alec and also CFACT, our approach is more human-centric to say, we're a part of the environment, we're here. How do we make us um, part of the environment and improve it for uh, human needs, but also animal needs. So, so Grant, uh, just jumping in there, these are some really interesting programs that you mentioned, the campfire program in Africa, and then a really good point about Texas, how there's so many different private uh, hunting grounds or reservations, whatever you want to call it. What other states in the United States have been implementing more private property-like uh, systems for the environment or for hunting? And I'll leave that up to both you guys, but I think that's a great conversation talking about you know, how one state might do one thing one way and Missouri does things a different way. I think that's an interesting thing for our, our listeners to get uh, some download on. Sure. So, I mean, you know, I might not have as extensive a knowledge of all of the states in the country as Grant does here, but one thing that pops into my mind, uh, in addition to uh, some of the things you mentioned, like the campfire program in Africa, Texas and Virginia both, you know, pop out in my, in my head in that. Uh, there's a, another species called, it's a type of antelope. And without sounding too technical, the actual name is the Scimitar Horned Oryx, okay. but it's a type of antelope. And they are using back to my magic days. I yeah, right. Sounds like Oryx. a sounds yeah. like a Pokemon or something. Yeah, exactly. Right? Yeah, 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 yeah. So um, they this antelope, we'll keep it at that, is <laughs> extinct in the wild. They're natural to Africa, but they're extinct in the wild. But they're thriving on private game ranches in Texas. And the whole point of that is that someone will pay a large sum at the chance to hunt the herd. You know, you only get to take one. It's not like they're decimating the population. And all of those funds go towards eventually reintroducing this animal population back into the wild. And so that's a way we're hunting. And again, property rights are kind of creating an incentive there. Same thing in Virginia. Uh, there's something, I think they're working with the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation. We've been doing something down there where um, they are trying to create uh, kind of reworked coal fields that are no longer in operation and turn them into reservations for elk. And the elk population is something that is very small. There's only about 200 to 300 of them in certain herds in Virginia. But they are trying to grow those herds. And that's kind of a public-private partnership there where the state of Virginia is allowing that and saying, okay, we're not just going to have this off limits. We're going to have local volunteers come in, local property owners can lease some of the land. And so Texas and Virginia stick out in my mind to those things you were talking about there. Yeah, those are great examples. Uh, anything else, Grant, state-wise you want to focus on? Yeah. Uh, mentioning the bison, um, there's a whole lot of conservation efforts in Montana. So you know, everyone knows uh, Yellowstone, some of our great national parks out there, uh, but there's also being a lot uh, done on the private sector side. Uh, I'm forgetting the name, but there's an effort to combine uh, different ranch and rangelands and, and private forest in Montana to create a greater uh, grazing area for bison, for elk, and different populations. And so, um, you know, we've seen our national parks, uh, and th- that has done a lot of great things for conservation. But we've also seen private efforts as well to uh, bring down fences in Montana to create 
uh, more rangelands and link them up to the Na- to Yellowstone National Park. And so um, you can have conservation done by government, done by either federal or states, but we're also seeing uh, more and more groups really taking the effort on the private sector side just through um, either private foundations, uh, individual landowners, companies, uh, buying up tracts of lands, um, having tourism, having uh, hunting in some cases. Some groups you know, don't want hunting. Some groups do. Some groups want tourism. But there's a lot of different efforts to uh, have spaces and make um, the environment and bring humans to the environment. Because the big thing, you know, if people are never around um, bison or other animals, they have no connection to the environment. You know, most of us live in cities. All of us were here in northern Virginia, yeah. uh, concrete jungle. Yeah, um, very urbanized area. <laughs> but you need that connection, I think, to the environment, whether it be through um, mountaineering, hunting, different things to really appreciate and truly understand how to how to conserve it, I think. And so oftentimes we've lost that living, you know, in more suburban or urban areas. Yeah, I think I think that's a very good point thinking about how it affects individuals and how it's a benefit you know just being out in nature and understanding the the policy a little better um so we're talking about states right now and obviously at the american legislative exchange council that's where we focus but kind of to my first point where we brought up uh the points of focusing on private properties and individuals what individual action can be done and not looking at collective action uh from government Let's look at even more collective action with, as collective as you can get, the federal government. So why states for any of these policies? Why not the federal government? What does the federal government get wrong? I would say the the federal government gets wrong in trying to, in many cases, do an across-the-board approach when it comes to environmental issues. The same environmental policies for New Jersey aren't going to work for Montana or Idaho or Texas. And so there's a reason that the states are called the, the laboratory of democracy. Louis Brandeis, thank exactly. you very that, much. There you yeah. go. That you know, federalism prospect in that if one state wants to do something, first off, we're a very big country, you know, especially mm-hmm. in terms of environmental uh, issues. You know, you've got algae concerns in Florida. You've got you know, owl concerns in New Jersey. You've got land management issues in Montana. All those things take you know, people who have been living in the state and know what's going on. And we work with a lot of great people at, you know, things like the Department of Interior and things like that. But the more power you can give to the states, the better. And that way you can see, okay, California, for example, is probably going to pursue much more stringent environmental policies than, say, the state of Louisiana. Mm -hmm. But if we can go and then say over the next several years, hey, look how much better the environment is in Louisiana or California – That goes to that laboratory phrase we were using before. We can kind of say the federal government can then go, oh, this is what works. This is what doesn't work. Yeah. And so that's the reason why it's so important to have the states pursue their own policies as much as you can. And one of the um, big issues that comes up is it's often um, conservation and economic development. Sometimes they're often put at, at a crossroads. You can either get one or the other. You know, you could either have uh, natural resource development, you can either have grazing, you can either have uh, farmland or, or different types of development, and they're often placed as an either-or scenario. And I think especially for the states, um, there's there's ways, in, in giving states the opportunity, there's ways to better balance that. And so getting that ratio right of how do we manage uh, energy development, how do we manage grazing land is much better done at the state level. Um, it's the people closest uh to its representatives closest to uh, the people in the states that actually can, can get a sense for uh, what do we need to focus on. If you just ban all economic development, 
uh, and ban all human activity in an area uh, that can have you know huge consequences to to the human populations. And so we, we've seen um, the federal government often take the approach of all or nothing. Let's ban all types of development. Let's ban all natural energy or natural resource development, or uh, allow it. And states can have a much more nuanced approach to say, hey, are there sensitive areas that we want to protect uh, because it's local lawmakers that usually know better? And then also balancing it with the needs for economic opportunities, for jobs, um, for tax revenue. And so taking a balanced approach and saying, hey, we can protect these lands in our states. Uh, and then also for less environmentally sensitive areas, allow more energy development, allows more gra- grazing, timber development. And so with local lawmakers, they often have a better idea of the natural resources of a state, what needs to be protected, uh, and then what can also be allowed for economic development. Yeah, I mean, state law- lawmakers clearly have this on-the-ground knowledge that I think is really important. Exactly. And just to piggyback off what Grant was saying there, you know, there's a good example of this that happened recently in Louisiana. And I don't know if you've heard of the dusky gopher frog, but... I have not. So the dusky gopher frog, I know I'm coming out with all these crazy <laughs> names today. Not Pokemon, I promise. We're going to fact check you, don't yeah, we? <laughs> so the dusky gopher frog uh, is native to Mississippi, usually, but there are several landowners in Louisiana who were not able to develop their land at all, like Graham was talking about, um, because that frog is, you know, protected under the Endangered Species Act, and which is a federal government yeah. program. And so, but the landowners were insisting there is no dusky gopher frog here, right? It's not native to the land. But because someone had claimed it was, that was all that was necessary for the Endangered Species Act to limit all development on that land. There was a recent Supreme Court case about this. Thankfully, the Supreme Court made the right decision in saying that, okay, you've got to better evaluate these things when it comes to the Endangered Species Act. Just because somebody said it was there one time isn't enough to totally restrict the land. And this would be one instance where a state-based approach would be much better. Louisiana lawmakers would be able to say, you know, in five minutes, there's no dusky gopher frog here. That doesn't make any sense. Mm. Of course, you can do what you want with your land. Yeah. But because the federal government is going, well, no, we got to be careful because exactly. So um, it's just we need that more nuanced approach to people on the ground who know what's going on. Yeah. I mean, and it sounds like this, to go back to one of your earliest points here, this, this is uh, systematic of a one-size-fits-all approach. Exactly. Uh, the Endangered Species Act, and then also just federal action in general, which is a great moment to bring up everyone's favorite uh, federal action talking point right now, which is the Green New Deal. So just, just vaguely, what are some free market uh, responses to the, the Green New Deal, and uh, what do you guys think about it? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, I think I just heard some thunder strike when you mentioned Green New Deal, you know, it's <laughs> raining outside all of a sudden, very scary, but no. Um, we dimmed the lights. Yeah, right. <laughs> so the Green New Deal, free market alternatives to the to the Green New Deal. Well, for those who haven't, you know, somehow heard of the Green New Deal <laughs> based off of how overreported it has been, the Green New Deal is, you know, this initiative advanced, it's trying to totally rework our economy you know, retrofit every single building possible with renewable energy, uh, ban fossil fuels completely, um, eventually at some point. Depending and, on which talking point document you receive, exactly. give, give uh, money to people who aren't working or not, depending on which talking point document you exactly. receive. Exactly. You know, obviously. ban cow farts, yeah. depending yes. on which document yeah. <laughs> you're talking about. Yeah. So uh, free market alternatives would be to um, 
in CFAC's opinion, remove as many subsidies for energy across the board as you possibly can. Okay. The Green New Deal tries to outlaw types of energy that many communities depend on, especially lower income folks. Mm. You know, when I was growing up, my family wasn't well off when the energy bill increased even by just $20 a month. I mean, we felt that, you know, Mm. that was less groceries you could buy, you know, birthday presents, et cetera. Yeah. And regardless of um, these issues, it's going to have a big impact on the least fortunate. And so what you need to do is reinstitute competition in the energy sector. When you have massive subsidies, that creates an incentive. We're talking about incentives here in property rights. That creates an incentive to have the best lobbyists so you can get the best deal from the government, especially when it comes to renewable energy companies such as you know, in solar and wind. If there are billions or millions of dollars on the table from the government, you're not going to necessarily invest in the best technology to beat your competitors. You're going to invest in the best lobbyists so that you can win that government grant. And what that does is it makes you the most innovative in relationship with the government, not in your product. And so you, we need to have competition in the energy sector. That's going to you know, provide the most efficient. And this goes for fossil fuels, too. You know, we need to remove subsidies across the board. Yeah, and that uh, tailors well with kind of Alex's philosophy. Um, on our tax and uh, fiscal side, we really try to have a neutral approach to source. So we don't want a tax preference or subsidy or a mandate for any particular source of energy. We want uh, everyone to have a level playing field. And I, I think you actually see um, uh, ch- changes over time that are um, an improvement. Uh, one of the biggest things is no one would have predicted uh, hydraulic fracturing uh, just you know, 10, 10 years ago, 2005, mm. 2004, you were looking at the U.S. having to import more natural gas. Uh, today, we're exporting natural gas. We're seeing it used for electricity generation. Wow. That was something that was um, never thought of 10 years ago. And uh, if you're concerned about CO2, that's actually been uh, one of the biggest uh, reductions of CO2 emissions is just cheap, uh, cheaper natural gas. Uh, it's gotten so cheap that it's actually competing with uh, coal in some cases. And so you've seen uh, more utilities, more power plants converting to natural gas over coal. Now, there's still a place for coal. There's still a place for, for nuclear, for, for all these different energy sources. Um, but if you're concerned about CO2, the biggest reduction in CO2 emissions has been from fuel switching from coal to natural gas. And that was something that no one could have predicted. And yeah. there wasn't really a public policy trying to do that. It was just simply innovation, people trying to find the cheapest most affordable and reliable fuel source. And in that case, it actually produced um, a result that many on the, the left that would have liked to have subsidies and mandates, it produced a result they wanted without uh, government intervention. Exactly right. Yeah. yeah, just innovation doing its thing, I suppose. I mean, uh, before we uh, sat down, of course, looking into some more of what CFACT uh, was doing, uh, came across the Conservation Nation YouTube series yes. and became a pretty good fan of it. So I'd love if you could explain that sure. to our listeners. And we'll include a link uh, to your YouTube page in the show notes Excellent. for this show here, but would love for you to give a quick little download on that. Yeah. So Conservation Nation, we are doing it in connection with Gabriella Hoffman. She is a media expert, a hunting advocate. And what we're trying to do is uh, focus on environmental success stories that have to do with property rights, with technology, with free markets, uh, with individuals who just care about their environment. They're not forced to do something by the government. They're just doing it because they live there and they care about their community. And so we're looking for those kind of underreported success stories on that. So in the first episode, we visited a company called Outdoor Access, which is kind of like the Airbnb for the outdoors, that app where you can just kind of rent someone's home if you're uh, traveling around. And what they do is if you've got some, some outdoor land, and you know, you're fine with some people using it responsibly, 
You can sign up with their app and rent it out to folks who want to camp, who want to hunt, who want to fish, who want to hike. And so it's really, again, through the free market system, through private property rights, uh, providing more access, like Grant had mentioned before, and exposure to the outdoors. And it's you know very affordable. Uh, so people, you know, lower income folks, people with kids, they can go out there and be like, you know, I live in this urban environment in Northern Virginia and I want to get my people, my family outdoors. So it focuses on things like that. And we're really excited to do that as an alternative voice to this kind of doom and gloom environmental message that everything you're doing is killing the planet. <laughs> freedom's a bad thing. No, freedom's a good thing. In yeah. fact, it's the best thing for yeah. the environment. And that's okay. what we're going to talk about in I completely agree. And that's that's a great principled approach Thank toward uh, conservation efforts. And it's probably really effective with college students this is where you focus. So I'd, I'd love to transition here. Sure. Um, what sort of issues do you see college students talking about um, that you're maybe addressing in the Conservation Nation series or in any other way? Yeah, I mean, they most certainly care about species without a doubt. Um, mm. You know, uh, whether they have names that sound like Pokemon or not, um, you know, <laughs> College students, the Pokemon names might be, they might care more we should about focus more yeah, on those. Exactly, yeah, 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 exactly. But <laughs> no, we, we care just about, just as much, you know, about the boring named fox as we do, you know, the, the Pokemon sounding folks. But um, they definitely care about species. That's something I found is very, uh, you know, interested uh, to them, especially alternative results. When we focus on, when we think about things like the Endangered Species Act, we want to focus on what's actually providing results. And if you look at the track record of the Endangered Species Act, it's very rare for a species to be listed in that and then to be taken off. And that's how we think that should be evaluated. How many species are you saving from endangered, from endangerment, from extinction? So talking about alternative approaches to that, like that antelope I mentioned before, is very interesting to them. Uh, unfortunately, you know, things like the Green New Deal are very popular, I find, on college campuses. Um, but I think that even just further highlights the importance of us having to talk about how freedom provides the best um, solutions to the environment. It just do it doesn't just not hurt the environment. It's the best solution. We've got to really start uh, hammering that message home, whether it's, you know, legislators doing that in their communities, whether it is, you know, on talk shows or things like this. And so species is definitely up there. Unfortunately, things like the Green New Deal, because college students care about the environment. They've been raised to care about that. And that's a good thing. Yeah. But we've got to talk about the right solutions to it. Yeah, I think that's a really good, a really good point. And um, you mentioned there focusing not only on great talk shows like the Alec Across <laughs> the States podcast, but also in uh, convincing local legislators and state legislators, mm -hmm. which our audience is filled of individuals across the states. But very importantly, it is filled with state legislators across the state. So I'd love for you yeah. and also Grant talk about, I mean, what kind of advice, uh, what kind of, uh, what is the take home? If a, if a state legislator is listening right now, what would you like them to remember? Sure. Um, well, like I said, I had worked in uh, the New Jersey legislature for a few years. So I mean, I have you know a whole lifetime of experience, but I do have something to take home in talking about these issues. You know, I handled legislation and speech writing, so I got a taste in what it's like to actually try to enact policy and what it's like to actually try to convince people about the importance of policy. And sometimes I think that it's very easy to look at all these issues and try to bite off the entire apple at once and be like, man, there's not enough you know, energy leasing in my state or man, the way we handle forest management in terms of forest fires is completely backwards. Um, I'm going to introduce a bill to kind of try to you know, completely turn that on its head. Um, I think that sometimes it's a much better approach to be like, let me try to find 
a colleague or an ally, whether it's someone on my side of the political aisle or someone across the side of the political aisle who recognizes a legitimate issue in the state that's maybe not quite as supercharged as some of the national issues out there and be like, no, this is a you know one-step approach that we can take. So rather than maybe trying to change, for example, the entire way we do forest management in the state, let's try to do it on, you know, um, public lands first or something, and then go that way and see if we can start a conversation. And that way you're much more likely to possibly get something I think advanced that way. And again, I don't mean to, to preach to people who have been in the legislature, you know, for decades and things like that. But, um, that's what I found, uh, what my boss, you know, back in the day, Tony Bucco did. So. Yeah. in terms of specific policies, one of the things, um, we did at our last meeting, um, we had the state and nation's policy summit in December of last year. And one of the things we worked on uh, was wildfires. You mentioned forest management and wildfires. And uh, one of the issues that we see in states is with utilities and power lines is that um, a utility will have a right of way for their power lines where they're responsible for cutting the trees, for cutting different grasses so that, you know, trees don't fall on a power line and, and start forest fires. Uh, some of the problems, though, is the utility only has that right of way. So it may be 50 feet. And then you go 51 feet over, then it's a national park, then it's private land. And in some cases, it's um, it's federally owned land. And so one of the resolutions that we came up with um, at our last meeting was for states to call on the federal government to allow um, utilities to slightly extend beyond their rights of way. Yeah. Obviously, you want to protect um, different endangered species, different trees, uh, th- things like that. But if you have a forest fire, all those are gone. Yeah. <laughs> and so we don't want to you know, um, uh, try and save the trees and then burn down the forest yep. to use that uh, tree forest yeah. example. Well, that's, that uh, <laughs> perfectly fits. You can't use a different example. Yeah. So, uh, But just realizing common sense like that, solutions like that, where if, if there's an issue issue where there's a bureaucratic, um, uh, you know, red tape because the state owns part of the land, the utility owns part of the land, and the federal government owns part of the land, extending right of ways so that uh, utilities can have a comprehensive uh, approach to maintaining um, these lands and to prevent forest fires. And so that was something that passed our task force in December and is available on our website for those interested. Yeah, I think that that's a really great point. And that does bring us to the end of our show today. Uh, our guests have been Adam Hauser, uh, the director of the Collegians program at the Committee for a Constructive Tomorrow, uh, which frequently works, and he writes also on energy and environmental topics. Adam, thank you very much for joining today. Absolute pleasure to be here. Thanks. And then, of course, our illustrious task force director, Grant Kidwell at the Energy, Environment and Agricultural Task Force. Thank you very much for hopping on the podcast today. Glad to be here. Thank you all for joining, and we will catch you next time. Once again, this has been the Alec Across the States podcast. Thank you all for listening. Thank you for listening to Across the States, the premier state-focused podcast presented by the American Legislative Exchange Council. To learn more about our work or to make a tax-deductible donation, follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Alec States, and check us out online at alec.org. All individuals on this show do not speak for the American Legislative Exchange Council and are representing their own individual opinions.